Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. There's just a few chapters left in this series, 28, 29, 30, and 31. And then we'll turn our attention to the New Testament in months to come. But for this morning, we are looking at an interesting story with King Saul. 1 Samuel 28, beginning at verse 3. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Beginning at verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whoever, whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, 
and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul. And when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore, also you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And they rose and went away that night. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask that you would use your word even this morning, that it would take deep root in our hearts, that we would see our need of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Wow. What is going on in this text? Is that really Samuel? What is Saul doing? What's with the witch? We're now nearing the end of this book of 1 Samuel and things are coming at us fast and furious. This is a story that is amazing to us. This is again one of these unique passages in the Bible. I call them kind of the passages that boys between the ages of 8 and 12 love. Because there's all sorts of crazy things going on. And it's hard to realize what is true. But the reality is that this story is about more than just odd events. It is a story in which we can see a picture of what it looks like to reject God. We see it once again in the person of Saul. And we see three things in Saul in this passage. The first thing we see is desperation. Paul is a desperate man. The situation around him is desperate and he is desperately alone. The second thing we see is foolishness. Saul's desperation drives him to foolish actions. And the third thing we see then is the consequence of rejecting God. What happens in a desperate situation when we foolishly try to substitute something for God? Desperation, foolishness, and consequence. Let's begin then by looking at Saul's desperate estate, as it were. These are desperate times for Paul, or for Saul, excuse me. Now, you will recall that there is a difference between the challenges of life and desperation, right? Life is full of hard times and challenges. 
But that's different than when desperation comes on us. So, students, you know there are challenges with homework, projects, and tests you have to take. It's not an easy life, right? But that's a little bit different than when you sit down for the final exam and you haven't studied it all and you realize you don't know any of the material. That's when desperation sets in, right? In our finances, we have challenges. We have budgets. We have unforeseen expenses that come to us all the time. But that's different than when a disaster strikes us like a flood, or like the loss of a job. That can cause desperation to come upon us. And that is where Saul is right now. He and Israel have faced challenges before. They fought the Philistines before. We saw that in chapter 23, in chapter 19, and in chapter 18. But now there is something different about this attack from the Philistines. This is no mere raid into Israel. The whole host of all of the Philistines have gathered together. We understand this from the very beginning of this chapter, verses 1 and 2. All of the armies of the Philistines are brought together under Achish. They even bring mercenaries like David to the battle. Every man that they have has been brought. And they are camped now at Shunem in Israel, the text gives us. Now, what does this mean? Shunem is a place in central Israel, right on a plain, the plain of Esdralon. Now, this is important because normally the Philistines would come from the sea and attack up from the south. And you remember what this looks like. Southern Israel is very hilly, mountainous. There are ridges, there are valleys, there are chasms. And you remember several times we have seen the Israelites and the Philistines face off against each other with a great chasm between them. You may also recall that the great weapon of the Philistines is the chariot. It's the ancient tank. And so now the Philistines have gathered themselves up and they are in central Israel on a plain that is perfect tank geography. It is flat. And one more thing. They are trying to divide Israel in two. They're right in the middle of Israel. They're actually 50 miles north of Saul's hometown of Gebeah. So what they're trying to do is cut Saul off from all of the northern tribes. They're trying to divide and conquer, which is a well-known military tactic. And Saul sees this and he understands this is not like chapter 23. This is not like chapter 19. It isn't even like chapter 17 when Goliath was there. I'm in trouble, he says to himself. He also knows that David is with the Philistines. Now this is important. Because how does Israel defeat the Philistines in chapter 17? How do they win the victory in chapter 18? Who is leading them in chapter 19? It's David. And so now Saul doesn't have his great champion on his side. And as a matter of fact, David is fighting for the other side. You can see why Saul is desperate. Both of his enemies are now against him. His whole world is crumbling. And we see clearly what's going on. 
because Saul is afraid. The text tells us in great detail in verse 5 that he is afraid and his heart trembled within him greatly. This is a very vivid description. There's no room for doubt. Now, think about this for a moment. Saul is the king. He's the one that's got to put the brave face on it, right? Because as soon as he reacts this way, it's going to ripple down through the ranks. You know this intuitively. Every parent knows this drill. Their child comes and falls and gets hurt and looks at, your, at his parents. And what do you do as a mom or a dad? Do you scream and yell and throw your hands up and say, this is the worst thing ever? No, what do you do? You look calmly at your child and you say, oh, you'll be okay. You're fine. Even if inside you're trembling, even if there's blood spewing, but you're trying to calm them down. You don't want to show how afraid you are. Saul can't even do that. Everyone knows he's afraid. But that's not the worst of it. Because Israel and Saul had fallen on hard times before. You know, remember when all of Israel fled to the caves in chapter 13? Remember when no one was willing to challenge Goliath in chapter 17? But now it's not just the circumstances that are desperate. It's not just the times. It's also that Saul is desperately alone. There is a deafening silence in the camp. Verse 3 starts with a reminder to us about this. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah. Now, we know from this book that Samuel and Saul had had a falling out. But you know how the saying goes, where there's life, there's hope. Saul could have at least held out that he could send messengers to Samuel if he needed help, if he needed advice, what to do, especially surely Samuel would want to help Israel against the Philistines. But now Samuel is gone. He can't go to Samuel. That's no longer possible. But it gets worse. Saul does what he's supposed to do to try to find out what he should do in verse 6. He inquires of the Lord by dreams, by Urim, and by the prophets. But the Lord doesn't answer. Now, this should not surprise us because God has already judged Saul. We have seen that. The question then, I think, should come to us is, why does Saul think this is going to work? And I think it's because Saul is fixated on orthodoxy. That is, Saul believes if he just does the right things in the right way, everything will be all right. That God will be obligated to help him. He's hoping if he just does this, it'll work. And so he tries every method. He dreams. He tries to use the Urim. He tries to talk to the prophets. And nothing happens. He's sure that if he just eats the right food before he goes to bed... God will give him the dream he needs. He's sure if he just brings out the Urim, God will give him the answer he needs. If he parades through just enough prophets, he'll get the answer. But this is unbelievably foolish, isn't it? 
Can't you see it? Now, you remember what the Urim is. We don't know exactly how it works, but we know it's a kind of a lot-telling device. You would ask the Lord a binary question, almost always yes or no. And through the use of the Urim, you would get God's answer, yes or no. Now, the Urim was kept in the ephod, and the ephod was held by the high priest. Now, stop and think about this for a minute. Where's the high priest? Does Saul have a high priest? No. Why does Saul not have a high priest? Because he killed him. And all of the other priests. Saul doesn't even have an ephod. Where's the ephod? It's with David. It's with the only surviving priest. So what Saul must have done is say, well, if you can't have the true ephod, make your own. And so he slaps together an ephod and he slaps together a new Urim, and he thinks if he says the same words that the priest normally says, that God will answer. Think about how foolish that is. All of this shows us that Saul is making no attempt toward repentance or faith. All he wants to do is manipulate God through forms. Now, that should be a warning to us. We should not think that we can manipulate God just by doing things by formality. That when we do that, God will do things for us. God is not to be called at our beck and whim. No. The Lord speaks to those who are in relationship with Him. There is far more that is needed than the form of orthodoxy. Well, the second thing we see is that this results in Saul moving from desperation to foolishness. You see, the Lord's silence didn't calm his fears. And we might have thought that the Lord's silence would have driven him to repentance. But instead, Saul doubles down on his apostasy. He begins looking in the wrong place for answers. Apostasy is its not exactly a big word, but it can be hard to understand. What is apostasy? It's actually very simple. Apostasy is not when a true believer falls away from the Lord. Apostasy is when an outward professing member of the covenant community becomes hardened in sin and rejects the Lord. Instead of seeking the Lord, the apostate is hardened to the point of no return. And the story of Saul should frighten us. It should drive us to the Lord to make sure our own profession. Because Saul is not like the people out there. Saul is like the people in here. He was at one point a professing believer. But there was no reality to his relationship with the Lord. He was only following the form so that he could get what he wanted. We've seen this over and over again. And so what Saul does is he looks in another place other than God for his answer. He seeks what's available to him. And that happens to be a medium, a witch, a necromancer. We might in modern days call them a psychic or a tarot card reader. Now, this is a problem for Saul because the text tells us he's already driven them out of Israel. Now, why did he do this? 
It's because God has said in Deuteronomy 18 that this practice is forbidden. And that if someone does this practice, they are to be put to death. God had made it clear to Israel that this was the practice of pagans. And that it was not to be done by his people. Now, this is not just a matter of following the rules. The issue is not whether seeking a medium will work or not. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that this practice is forbidden because it won't work. It's forbidden because it's wicked. It's seeking answers from outside the Lord, from false gods or from demons. But Saul is so miserable and is so alone that he embraces this foolishness. He is in the greatest crisis of his life. And God is not speaking to him. Now, this is ironic because we know that he's alone because he refused to listen to God. And that's why God has judged him. Do you remember when he did not carry out God's wrath against Amalek in chapter 15? In this chapter, we're reminded of it when Samuel speaks. Instead, Saul did what he wanted. And so God is silent. And Saul begins looking in the wrong place for answers. Now, I want you to imagine what could possibly be worse? What could be worse than knowing you need to repent, but you can't? Because you are past repentance. Your heart is so hard. You have so abused the gifts of God. You have so rejected His Word. You have been so self-centered that you can't repent. Instead here, Saul is floundering around. He doesn't know what to do. So let me ask you this. Are you looking in different places for calm, for courage, or for hope? Because there's only one place that you can find these things. And that's with the Lord. Well, Saul is not only looking in the wrong place, he is looking for the wrong thing. And the two are related. Because for Saul, all he wants is help. Right? He just wants his circumstances to get fixed. He doesn't really want to restore the relationship. He refuses to see that his circumstances are a result of the choices of his heart. Now... We see this sometimes in a lesser way in our lives. When there's conflict or especially when our children are disobedient. We tend to think in this way. What can I say or do to stop you from being angry? What can I do to make things right and get us back to normal? And we don't think about what is the heart issue that's caused this? What do we need to repent of? What do we need to change in us? We just want to change out there so that everything gets back to normal so we're fine. That's Saul-eyed thinking. To just want circumstances to be fixed. And so Saul is not looking for God at all. He's only looking 
for answers that God could provide. And so there is this fascinating, crazy exchange that happens. It's, it's like something out of a movie. Saul puts on different clothes and he sneaks around at great risk to himself because in order to get to Endor, there is a hill in Israel and on the northern side of the hill is Endor. And do you know what's on the southern side of that hill? Shunem, the camp of the Philistines. So he's got to risk getting close to the Philistines to get around to get to this woman. And then he asks her to bring up a dead person to help him. Now, think about that. He wants a dead person's help more than he wants the help of the living God. And so the woman looks at him and she doesn't want to fall into a trap. In verse 9 she says, I've seen this trick before. You ask me if I'm a medium, I say I'm a medium, and then I get hit over the head. No, I don't like this. So what does Saul do to assure her that she should call someone up from the dead and practice something that is in violation of God's explicit law? What could Saul possibly do? Well, of course, he could swear by the Lord. Now think about that irony. In order so that he can violate God's law, he swears by the Lord. It makes absolutely no sense at all. It's the most foolish thing imaginable. And so, Saul is not willing to risk repentance. But he is willing to risk danger and he is willing to risk violating God's law because he's not driven by the love of God but he is driven by the fear of others and then there is this odd event that probably since we've read it you wonder what is going on here Samuel is brought up from the dead and you're asking yourself is this real is this a fake is this a demon what is going on here Now, if you're confused, you're in good company because the commentators are all over the place on this with every imaginable solution. Some say that Saul is fooled. Some say he's involved with devils. Now, this is what it seems to me as I look at the passage. It seems to me that this passage has the mark or ring of truth in it. What do I mean by that? Now, the woman who's a medium says she's going to call up Samuel, what's the first thing she does when she sees him? She screams. Why? Because she's surprised and afraid that she's called up Samuel. Because like modern day tarot card readers, like modern day psychics, she is used to being a fraud. She's got tricks. She doesn't have a modern laser light show, but she's got tricks, right? It's the same way that these psychics deal with this. What they do is they come and they say, someone here is in, is in trouble. And that's like 90% of the people. Someone here is in trouble in their family. And that's like 60% of the people. Someone here is in trouble and they have a small family. And that's like 20% of the people. And they just keep making general statements 
until somebody's convinced it's about them, right? That's how they do it. You've seen the, the setup on the news programs where they catch the people with the hidden microphone and hidden earpiece and people feeding them information, right? They're frauds. That's who the medium is. And yet when she sees Samuel, she is struck and afraid. And then the other thing is, the message that Samuel gives is one we expect from Samuel, isn't it? It's not what we expect the devil to say. It's not what we expect the medium to say. Because we've heard this speech from Samuel before, almost verbatim, two or three times. Right? He tells Saul, the Lord has rejected you. You had, did not obey his voice. You didn't carry out his wrath. I mean, we've heard this before. It seems very real. Now, the other thing I want us to remember is, again, nowhere in the Bible does it say that this practice doesn't work. It just says it's wicked. So, how then is Samuel involved? Then your next question for me is, well, pastor, does that mean if I die, i got to worry about somebody raising me up from the dead every... Tuesday night? I don't want to have that. I want to rest in peace. That's what I want. No, I think it's really not the medium doing this. It's God. You see, God is using this illegitimate, wicked method of this woman who is a fraud, and he is speaking his word again of judgment to Saul for all to hear. God is still in charge here. It's not like, whoops, Samuel got out of my hand. No, God is the one who is in charge. He's bringing his word of doom to Saul. And so when Saul speaks to Samuel, he says, God is silent, so I need your help. I need you to tell me what to do. All Saul wants is the right information. He's looking for the wrong thing. He's not even looking for God. He's in the wrong place looking for the wrong thing. And so, he is struck with Samuel's speech back to him. Now, you may say, well, this is all well and good and it's kind of exciting. But I'm not the king of Israel. Um, I'm not calling on mediums. What does this have to do with me? This isn't really something we face today. It's not practical. And I would put it to you that this type of thinking is alive and well in America in the 21st century. It's alive and it's alive and well in those who profess to follow Jesus. Those who are a part of what we call the word faith movement. Who think that God is there to give us stuff. And if I just say the right statement, if I just give the right mantra, if I just think the right thoughts, God has to give me money. God has to give me health. God has to give me this. God has to give me that. And if you listen to these so-called preachers, you will see they are not speaking about Jesus. They're not speaking about what Jesus did. They're not speaking about your need to have your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ. They're not speaking about who Jesus is. They're speaking about what God can give you. How you can have your best life. That is the thinking of Saul. You don't go to God to fix your marriage. You don't go to God to teach you how to parent well. 
You don't go to God to give you health. You go to God for Him to have a relationship with the Lord, not just seeking what He can provide. And so thirdly, and briefly, we see the consequences of abandoning God. You see, the worst part here is that it's not that Saul doesn't get a good plan to defeat the Philistines. Right? He'd almost have been better with no message. Because the message that comes to him out of his desperation, out of his foolishness, is a confirmation that the Lord has rejected him. It was bad enough when the Philistines were at the door, right? Now he has the judgment of God ringing in his ears. God says to him, You will not survive the day. Your sons will not live. The army will be destroyed. (coughs) I am giving you into the hands of the Philistines. And so what then happens to Saul? The text paints this for us in vivid color. Saul has absolutely no strength left at all. He just lays on the ground. His fear has overwhelmed him and he has no place to go in verse 20. As a matter of fact, it's so bad, the medium takes pity on him. She says... You need to eat. I'm going to fix you something. And in typical Middle Eastern understatement, she says, I'm going to make you a morsel of bread. And then she proceeds to take the fattened calf and to to make this year's best barbecue. She cooks up a feast for a king. And actually, you know what it reminds me of? What do they do for folks on death row? You get your last meal, don't you? You get your last supper. You want a big steak? You can have a big steak. It's your last steak. You want a big rack of ribs? You can have your ribs. You know why? It's your last rack of ribs ever. That's what Saul's getting here. He's getting his last supper because she feels sorry for him. And listen to the despair at the end of this chapter. Then they rose and went away that night. There's no hope there. They're going out into the night because apart from the Lord, there is no hope. You see, we may think we can manipulate events. We may think we can stay ahead of the game. We may think we can do without God. But the truth is that all that remains is the enactment of judgment. And this scene should remind us of another scene. Of another last supper. When someone went out into the night, a night of no hope. Do you recall at the last supper of our Lord and his disciples that Judas ate his fill and then it says he went out into the night and he had no hope. The gospel writers want us to know that it's nighttime, not because they want to tell us the position of the sun. They want us to know that it is darkness that is overwhelming Judas, that there is no hope And that even when he gets what he wanted, the money, he throws it away. And hopeless, he hangs himself. Because there is no hope outside the Lord. 
But that doesn't mean that has to be the case. You see, remember that Saul's problem and his despair don't come from the situation. They don't come from the circumstances, but from the rebellion of his heart and his rejection of the Lord. He keeps moving further and further away from the Lord as he tries to find solutions in his life. And in a sense, this is what many people do today. They try to find security in their plans. Happiness in their money, or in food, or in drink, or in recreation. They try to build up a protection against the world and the events of the world by their own wits. But real hope is found only in the one who went into darkness for us. Jesus entered the darkness of our sin and our death. And he came out victorious. He defeated all his and all our enemies. He brings the light of the gospel to us. The work of Jesus is to defeat death, to defeat despair. No matter how black your sin is, no matter how foolish you have been, no matter how desperate your circumstances are, If you will trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have hope. There is hope found in the work of Jesus. Believe now that you need saving. You have gone astray from the Lord. And Jesus died to bring you back to God. You don't need a better life plan. You need to be reconciled to God. Jesus can do that. He has promised that. Trust Him. Now. Let's pray. 